It's the 10th of September, 2021. This is the Room Now podcast. Hi, I'm Dr. Jack Cush, executive editor of RoomNow.com. This week, high science, you know, gooey cells and Petri dishes and genes that affect future treatment. Breakthrough infections in our patients, what's up with that? And soon your radiologist is going to be replaced by that electronic voice from War Games. Hello, Dr. Falcon. Do you want to play? Anyway, artificial intelligence comes to radiology. Let's begin with a um, nice discussion of what happens with criteria in inflammatory myositis patients. Um, When you look at the patients from uh, the Johns Hopkins group, 520 myositis-specific antibody-positive patients, and when they see if how they would perform using the 2017 ACR diagnostic criteria for um, inflammatory myositis, you know, they did pretty well, 91%. So sometimes relying on those criteria can be helpful. I reported this because actually where it didn't work, and it was interesting to note that patients who had the statin-associated associated necrotizing, antibi- necrotizing myositis-associated HMGCR antibodies or those with anti-PL7, um, 20% and 50% respectively did not get diagnosed as myositis. And then patients who had HMGCR antibodies and uh, signal recognition particle antibodies were more likely to be diagnosed with uh, inclusion body myositis. Not more likely, but uh, a subset were. So it falls down in a few of those instances. It's, I guess, important to be aware of those instances. Um, differential diagnosis of necrotizing inflammatory myositis, you may say. Hmm, we already said HMGCR um, antibodies, SRP antibodies. Those over on checkpoint inhibitors. Um, those that have um, MI2 antibodies uh, with dermatomyositis. Patients, some with the antisynthetase syndrome and some patients with anti-mitochondrial antibodies, GVHD, and even SARS, CoV-2, the COVID-19 infection, can cause necrotizing myositis. So there are a lot of novel studies coming uh, from nature and science advances and uh, scientific journals that we don't usually read, but I like this one about uh, the use of um, nanoparticles that have um, uh, small interfering uh, RNAs in them that target the um, the MMP13, um, w- uh, which, as you know, is a key mediator in osteoarthritis, is responsible for the breakdown of type, type 2 collagen. Um, these researchers have shown that you can take um, these siRNAs, these small interfering RNAs, to basically inactivate MMP13 um, and put them into uh, nanoparticles and inject them intraarticularly where they can be shown in mice models to significantly prevent um, pain and also damage in an OA model. Um, Again, we need stuff like this because really what works in osteoarthritis? A whole lot of nothing. Um, Similarly, CRISPR technology, when was that going to come to rheumatology? And as you know, that's gene editing technology where uh, researchers were able to take stem cells um, and showed how they could program these stem cells to um, sense inflammation and then in response to what they sense, specifically produce anti-cytokine therapy like anakinra or other uh, anti-inflammatory biospecific therapy um, 
basically this is targeted therapy for certain biology, certain diseases. Uh, it's a new and cool way um, that might find its way into patients at some point. At this point, it's in those poor little mice who have all that disease that we're studying. Um, another no novel study comes from the UK where they looked at um, different stages of RA, including preclinical RA, early RA, and established RA. And at least in preclinical RA and um, established RA, don't ask me about early RA, I'm not sure why they didn't do as well, but those two groups, preclinical and established RA, number one, they have increased gut permeability. I know we hear a lot about it. It seems like a lot of hocus pocus, but maybe there's something to it. Um, they showed that gut permeability does worsen with activity. That's kind of interesting. They show that gut permeability is not altered by your best therapies, including biologics and TNF inhibitors. And lastly, using a, an RA model, mouse model, they showed that you can block or improve gut permeability. And guess what? It ameliorates the arthritis, downregulates disease activity. Is this yet another way that we can better control arthritis in the future? So... Everybody's asking about diet. There's always a study about diet. There's a study here about two cohorts of the nurse's health study showing there's no association between diet and the risk of lupus. I wasn't sure that there was, um, but now I can sleep at night knowing that there isn't. But uh, they did show that taking a, uh, a high legume, high nut diet, oh my God, help me, um, it was associated with a reduced risk of lupus, of lupus so maybe that's worth it. Um, as you know, discussions on diet have more to do with weight and your waistline and, and your acne more than um, disease per se. So um, <laughs> I thought this was very interesting um, that the whole issue of COVID and who it affects and who should get um, the vaccine, there's uh, a nice two different cohort studies, one from yesterday's New England Journal and this one that I'm talking about here that shows that women who are pregnant, who were exposed to the COVID-19 um, vaccine were not statistically more likely to uh, have spontaneous abortions. So that's covered in two different reports occurring this week. That is uh, some measure, as you know, the OBGYN Society, uh, ACOG, they recommend patients should be vaccinated as they wish, as they should, and there's no particular uh, restrictions on them receiving the vaccine. Um, you know, diagnosis is something we're all concerned with. We want our patients to be diagnosed and sent to us as early as possible. A Mayo Clinic, Olmsted County um, study looking at incident psoriatic arthritis showed that more than half, 55% of those ultimately diagnosed with psoriatic arthritis had a diagnostic delay of more than two years. And that, that has not changed over time. Uh, so there's a lot to be said about, you know, we, we talked about diagnostic delays with certainly spondylitis, even with rheumatoid arthritis. You know, these really are difficult um, problems to tackle. Um, we could point the finger at primary care, but do you really expect them to know everything you know and practice as you do? You have to have a better relationship with primary care and you have to somehow help them make that earlier diagnosis by creating better awareness. There needs to be public health measures that go right after patients and families to be proactive about this. And then you need to have the um, avenue for which patients can quickly and easily get in and none of this you know, two to six month wait because you're so good and you're so busy. They're going to go somewhere else and get misdiagnosed further adding to that problem. 
The FDA this week has, I, I think, made a, 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 what I think, a breakthrough kind of new clearance. This is a medical device clearance for an intelligence algorithm. This is one of those AI algorithms um, called RB knee, where they AI can diagnose OA of the knee. That's right. You're not involved. It's just an X-ray and a computer, and that voice from War Games talking to Doctor Falcon. Doctor Falcon, you do have OA of the knee. It can diagnose joint space narrowing, subchondral sclerosis, osteophytes, um, joint space width, um, with high accuracy and high reproducibility. As we've talked about before, one of the main users of or main benefits of AI and machine learning in the future may very well be in the field of radiology. Um, this week we had um, a lot of play on that FDA uh, announcement, the drug safety communication about the JAK inhibitors and the new box warning. We got a nice video up um, with myself, Jeff Sparks, uh, Catherine Dow, Rachel Tate, and Bill Shergi talking about what this means and how it's going to affect their practice. You might want to take a, a, a look at that. I, I think that um, when we asked them what they thought about the FDA response, they were sort of um, split in their uh, whether the FDA did the right thing or the wrong thing. Remember, this was a study uh, of tofacitinib that they then ex uh, extended the results to warnings for the other JAK inhibitors, upadacitinib and baricitinib. Um, when asked, all the rheumatologists said, no, well, I'm not stopping because of this, but yes, I'm probably going to have to change my conversations with patients. One, I'm going to have to feel a lot of new conversations and allay a lot of fears. And two, I'm going to have to um, probably proactively talk about JAK inhibitor safety, not just VTE issues, but cardiovascular lymphoma risk up front, just like we did when we first started using TNF inhibitors. This is going to change the momentum that the JAK inhibitors have had in the last few years, getting a lot of new indications, a lot of studies, a lot of buzz around what they might could do in the future. Um, basically, this boils down to patient selection, and you may have to be careful. So you probably shouldn't put patients um, on JAK inhibitors if they are older, obese, and have a prior history of VTEs. Maybe the same should be said if they are older, have cardiovascular risk factors, have cardiovascular events, or maybe even lymphoma. But again, we need to see more data. The number needed to harm here is probably low. I don't have a real number. I haven't done the math. Another doctor I know said it was one in 300 or 300. If you look at a lot of the other, there's actually a literature report of MACE events being 793 was the number needed to harm. So these are rare events. Um, so you need to know the few who shouldn't go on these drugs or need to be taken off the drugs. By the way, if you have a patient who's freaking out about this because you know, their, their, their mother died of distemper and a stroke and they're worried about getting a stroke from this drug, it's probably better just to stop the drug, even if it's working, because if they're going to be fretting over this, then the drug's going to fail ultimately. Um, a nice project from uh, the University of Pittsburgh looked at their ability to better vaccinate their patients using EMR reminders uh, and mainly looking at the, uh, the pneumonia vaccines, uh, PPSV23 and PCV13, Numavax and Prevnar13, respectively. Their use went up from 28% to 62% for the Numavax and for all vaccinations went from 50% to 77%. You could program that into your EMR to remind you to do this as well. 
A lot of talk about kids, kids going back to school and what their risk is going to be. The CDC came out saying right now, if you look at the data, uh, hospitalization rates are up tenfold compared to last year for COVID in kids, infants, zero to four years of age, tenfold increase in the last year. This is during the Delta variant era. And more importantly, uh, amongst the kids who are hospitalized, they are 10 10 times more likely to be unvaccinated than vaccinated. Again, very sobering. Also sobering, the data from the state of New Jersey. Three out of four patients who are hospitalized in New Jersey are unvaccinated. So they've got 5.6 million vaccinated, 2.7 non-unvaccinated. Their rates, the hospitalization rate based on vaccination, if you are um, vaccinated, it's four per 100,000. If you're not vaccinated, it goes up sixfold um, to 26 per 100,000. Again, six times more likely is another reason why the vaccine should be a happening thing in you and your patients. Um, A nice survey out of Italy looked at, uh, no, actually this is Turkey. Uh, But I think this applies to the United States and Canada and the rest of the world. Survey of almost 300 patients during the COVID era showed that 22% reduced their uh, therapy or interrupted their therapy that you gave them without your advice. Uh, Only 4% stopped, so that's kind of good. But a quarter of them basically adjusted their therapy without asking you. Half the patients said that they made the decision on their own out of worry and out of anxiety. Anxiety was their number one reason. Uh, A lack of access to IV drugs, meaning they couldn't come in for their infusion in 45%. um, the, the unavailability of certain treatments, meaning shortages or not going to the pharmacy in 7%. Uh, again, the biggest mistake that was made during COVID by you and me was that you didn't have a proactive plan to reach out to all patients. Wait, wait, you did? Well, thank goodness. I wish you had taught your, your colleagues, but most of us did not have a plan to reach out to our patients and proactively tell them the do's and don'ts. You know, we all had our scripts for when people called and when people came in, but there are a lot of people who never got that message and are still without that message. So the big concern right now is the breakthrough infection. So Jeff Sparks and his group in Boston, they've got, I don't know, um, a large cohort. They found 340 patients uh, who, of whom with rheumatic disease uh, who have been vaccinated. From that cohort, 4.7% or 16 patients developed breakthrough infection despite having been fully vaccinated. What's the profile of these patients? 75% seems to be the right number. 75% female, 75% with comorbidity. 75% of them had either RA, SLE, or inflammatory myositis. And over 75% were taking methotrexate, mycophenolate, and prednisone. Six of them died. I'm sorry, two of them died. Six were hospitalized. So not inconsequential, although vaccinated, small risk of hospitalization and death. So again, masking, distancing, avoiding Uncle Louie's wedding and um, bar mitzvahs. I don't be doing it, folks. I think you can travel safely and still go out safely, but wear the mask, wear the, you know, uh, keep your distance, uh, wash your hands. Um, lastly, um, uh the diagnostic delay. Oh, I already talked about that. Did I not? Let's end up with um, a um, talk back or a message from or a case from one of our listeners. This is Teresita Taylor. She's a family nurse practitioner. Let's listen to her question. How do you approach uh, patients who have tophaceous gout that is in, on control 
and they have multiple health comorbidities such as uh, chronic kidney disease, diabetes, heart disease, and they are G6PD deficient. What is your approach uh, to this patient? What is your pharmacological approach to this? Well, thank you, Teresita. That's um, unfortunately, it's uh, an unfortunate patient. Unfortunately, that's not many of our patients. But this subset, tophaceous gout with uh, bad disease and those comorbidities, heart disease, renal disease, et cetera, you know, this is that number I think that um, the Horizon people published, I want to say it was 30,000, could have been 3,000, who have severe refractory gout. They're out there. We got to manage them. What's my approach? Um, treat the target. Got to get them down really low. If you can't get them down with high dose and um, urate-lowering therapy, whether it's with uh, 40 or 80 milligrams for Bucystat or um, 300 to 800 milligrams of allopurinol. Remember, the vast majority of rheumatologists still only use 300 milligrams of allopurinol. If they have renal, fa renal failure, renal insufficiency, you can still go up. You just monitor their kidney function. Being very, very aggressive um, and in and, and, and getting that uric acid down. Hypertension control. Um, have them being followed by renal and cardiology. And then, yes, if necessary, they need to be on peglodicase. You know, uric acid and that high total body urate load is disastrous. It is toxic to kidneys, blood vessels, heart, and their survival. Um, so being very aggressive and team management is probably my best advice in managing such patients. Anyway, that's it for this week on the podcast. Again, you can submit your question or case to Backtalk on the email and on the website. We'll talk next week. Take good care of yourself. Wear the mask. Stay away from people.